0: Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com/notseenradio. That's P A T R E O N.com/notseenradio. Thank you. This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu/ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, an ancient practice of the Catholic Church helps executives move from warrior to wise elder. We talk with our guest, John Fontana, about how the spiritual exercises of Ignatius Loyola are applicable to today's business world. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is John Fontana. He's president of Fontana Leadership Development, an organizational and leadership development firm that provides consultation, educational, and facilitation services to improve the effectiveness of leaders in managing organizational and individual change. He's past executive director of Partners for Catholic Health Ministry Leadership, a consortium of 17 Catholic health organizations. He founded and was the executive director of the Crossroads Center for Faith and Work at Old St. Patrick's Church in Chicago, a significant resource in the Chicago business community to encourage ethical reflection in the workplace. He has taught management courses at Georgetown University, Dominican University, Loyola University, Chicago, and Elmhurst College. He's taught ministry courses at the University of Notre Dame, Mundelein College, Loyola University of New Orleans, and St. Mary of the Lake University. He holds a master's in management from the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University, a master's degree in religious education from Loyola University, Chicago, and is a doctor of ministry candidate at St. Mary of the Lake University. John Fontana, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you, David. So I'm, I'm very curious. First of all, your life is a melding of business and religion. So let's start there. Just in a broad sense, how do these two
1: vectors, religious
0: faith and business life, intersect for you?
1: That's a fascinating question. They intersect because when I was doing youth ministry work years and years ago, I worked with couples who worked with teenagers and the wives said to me, John, you've got to do something with our husbands. They're under a lot of stress. And I was 26 years of age and I had no idea what to do, but I was wise enough to organize a smoker, invited all the men for smokes and drinks and cards. And I said, before we begin, I need you to, to answer two questions for me. And then we'll play. The questions were, what is work doing to you, and what are you doing to work? We never got to cards. It was a Wednesday night meeting. We stopped the meeting at 11, and we walked out at 3 o'clock in the morning. And one of the men said to me, I've been meeting with my high school friends for almost on a weekly basis. We've never had a conversation like I heard here tonight. So that got me very curious about the experience these guys had in the workplace. And as a minister, my role in some ways was to theologically reflect with them, And to discover where was the movement of God in their lives, and particularly in terms of work, how they were balancing it with family and church. And so that sent me, when I was priced out of the ministry market at 30 years of age, to go into industry and go out and experience that that workplace and to get educated around it. So Kellogg was magnificent for that orientation to the workplace. And so my life has been spent trying to understand what the movement of God is in the workplace as opposed to bringing God to the workplace. It's to, to see how God manifests himself in the experience of, of business organizations and with people. So that's what I do. I'm in search of the kingdom all the time and its manifestations in relationship to um, where's grace in the workplace. Now,
0: Augustine talked about, you just mentioned kingdoms and Augustine talked about two different kingdoms. He said that there's the, the kingdom of heaven and then there's the kingdom of the world. And a lot of evangelical efforts are designed to try and bring the kingdom of heaven into the world. But what I'm hearing instead is you're instead going out and trying to discover where God is already operating in the world.
1: If I may, that sounds very Jesuit. Is that a fair characterization? Oh, well, that's very, uh, absolutely accurate. The ability to see God in all things well, and is so, a Jesuit understanding. It's also Jung in relationship to bidden or unbidden, God is present. Okay. And by, when you say Jung, which...
0: which Carl Jung? Jung. So Carl Jung, the psychologist, and then Ignatius Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits. So for our listeners who may be unfamiliar, first of all, with Carl Jung, how does Carl Jung fit into all of this?
1: One of the things I've done is I've worked with two psychiatrists in uh, out of Morrison Associates, And we do executive senior level executive assessment work and change management work. And because of that, I've been immersed in the psychological languages that are another language and another way to to engage both in the church marketplace as well as in the in the business marketplace. Okay, and so Carl Jung was a he was a
0: contemporary of Sigmund Freud, do I remember? Correct. And so he was one of the founders of this whole notion of psychology and psychiatry. Correct. So you're using you're using sort of scientific tools in one sense to understand and assess what's going on in the workplace. But then you also mentioned the Jesuits and Ignatius Loyola. So help me understand again for our listeners who may be unfamiliar with who Ignatius was, just quickly Who is Ignatius Loyola? And when we say that this was kind of a Jesuit
1: approach, what does that mean? Ignatius was a real unique character, I think, in relationship to uh, starting probably the largest educational and missionary organization in the world. In doing so, he paid real strict attention to the movements, the affects that were and desires that his troops contended with. It's out of that that he wrote the the spiritual exercises of Ignatius that all Jesuits go through at least, usually at least two or three times in the course of their lives, the 30-day silent retreat. And it's an attempt to take a look at the life of Christ and how you relate to that. And in doing that, you begin to see and develop your own interiority so that you're moving in life um, in relationship to the spirit of God that's present within you, as well as identifying the movement of God in the workplace. The Jesuits have a, an exercise and spiritual practice called the examine that invites you on a daily basis to take 15 minutes a day, twice a day, noontime at the end of work and the end of the day, to reflect on where was the movement of God in the workplace? Where was grace? Where did you see it? How was it operative? And the ability to do that allows you to cultivate not only your interiority, but also a reflective orientation to life that allows, without reflection, there's there's, there's little adaptation. And today in the business world, particularly with the amount of stress that people experience and the amount of change that's coming out, we need more and more adaptive leaders and the ability for them to engage in conversations, faith-based conversations, that allow them to have reflective time seems to me to be vitally important for the health of the organization as well as their own personal health.
0: Now, let's go back. So, you had an evening where you were inviting the men of your community to come and reflect, and they at first they thought they were just going to play cards, but you right. invited them first of all to reflect. And in this reflection, you, you say that you were you were acting in a ministerial fashion. Was this just a
1: lay ministerial activity, or had you had some formal ministerial
0: training at that point?
1: I had a master's degree in religious education and was going through a doctor of ministry program, in terms of focusing on theological reflection. Okay, that gave it practice.
0: Yeah, and so so, (laughs) that's wonderful. So that gave you an opportunity to talk to these people. I'm curious, what was the first question that you asked them that opened up this whole can of worms of conversation? The question was, "What is work doing to you, and what are you doing to work?" Okay. And if you feel comfortable sharing, what were some of the answers that you got? Or what was the range of answers that you got?
1: Oh, the range was uh, was fascinating. Some of the guys were, had to wrestle with ethical questions mm. in the workplace. Others were working with micromanaging bosses, ex- extensive travel, the accounting profession that during tax season is, um, is pretty inordinate in terms of the, the time demands. So yeah, I was listening to all that type of stuff and saying to myself, hmm, this is a world that I'm not all that familiar with. I'm a son of the Ford Motor Company. My dad was a, a district s- uh, sales manager for Ford. And so I, at dinner table, I picked up a lot of the Ford stuff. I, I have a kind of natural orientation toward business and toward sales, uh, being an extrovert. And uh, given that background, I understood most of the language that was being expressed. But the uh, the issue for me was one of empathy, and trying to say, well, where's God in this mix? And so, it um, when I was priced out of the ministry market, I said, let's go into industry and experience it firsthand, and and then work with people within the organizations that I'm in to uh, support them and you know build healthy organizations. You've used this so, phrase a, a couple of times, priced out of the ministry market. Help me understand yeah. what that means. Oh, uh, that that meant that I just gotten married. Uh, the the jobs in Catholic ministry weren't all that well paying. So it was, uh, in terms of getting married and thinking about a future and family, I said, you know, if you're going to make the change, it would be smart to make it in, during my age 30 transition. Because if to wait much longer, it would have kept me within kind of the not-for-profit world. And so what, what sorts of industry did you go into? Initially, I took the advice that was given to Dustin Hoffman in the movie The Graduate. Plastics. Plastics. <laughs> um, I was the director of sales and marketing for a small injection molding company. We took it from about $3 million to $7 million in business through two recessions when I worked for them. And it was a great learning laboratory for me. I had a great boss. He taught me not only the business, but I got a chance to do all the dimensions of in the workplace from selling product to pricing product to getting product out the back door to working in kind of a human resource function. So I had a lot of great experience in a small business, and it was a great laboratory. And my two major customers were General Motors and General Electric. So I saw the big guys as well as what it takes to kind of build an organization. And so in doing that and in
0: working in every aspect of the business, you say that part of what you were doing was kind of looking for God in those places. Right. Quickly, before we go to break, where was the first place that you
1: found God in your work in industry? Well, it's it's always through people. The spirit that's present in groups— and the um, camaraderie that develops. You know, when you really build an effective team, people end up loving each other. So you can see the, the movement of grace within, a, in, within an organization. And in some ways, the, the ability is the ability to be able to see in this, the sacred and the secular. That's a really key skill and gift to use in terms of theologizing, and then understanding the audience in relationship to how you utilize religious language. Because the issue isn't for me to have to proselytize. The issue is for me to be able to see it myself so that I'm engaged in the building of the kingdom wherever I am. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking
0: today to John Fontana. He's the founder and president of Fontana Leadership Development, an organizational and leadership development firm that provides consultation, educational, and facilitation services to improve the effectiveness of leaders in managing organizational and individual change. We'll be back in a moment. Looking for signs of hope in the Chicagoland education scene? Bright Promise Fund for Urban Christian Education serves 15 schools in Chicago and nearby suburbs with scholarship funding for students and families in search of quality, faith-based educational options. Visit brightpromisefund.org to learn more about schools where students flourish. Good schools make for good neighborhoods. brightpromisefund.org. That's brightpromisefund.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with John Fontana. He's the founder and president of Fontana Leadership Development. It's an organizational and leadership development firm that provides consultation and facilitation services to improve the effectiveness of leaders in managing organizational and individual change. Well you were telling us before the break about the way in which you moved from full-time ministry to full-time industry and you were working for a firm that did injection mold plastics and you had a chance to basically get involved in every aspect of that industry. So this was this was your long-term career. Did you stay in plastics until you got into management consulting or did you take a turn into a different industry from
1: there? What happened was in 1985 my father dropped dead of a massive heart attack I'm at so the age sorry. of 58. And what that has a tendency to do is to stir stuff up. Yes. In the injection molding business, it's really an engineering profession. Mm -hmm. And I learned a lot about engineering and the technicalities around plastic. But my heart wasn't in it enough. And so uh, Jack Wall, who was the pastor at Old St. Patrick's Church in downtown Chicago and was a classmate in the doctor of ministry program, invited me down to Old St. Pat's to um, create a Crossroads Center for Faith and Work which is a downtown church, was to begin to build a ministry that met people's needs from the perspective of the workplace. The purpose of that was our understanding of the role of the lady in the church is that the role of the lady is really to transform the world, not just the church. And so we took very seriously that mission to transform the world. And in order to do that, we needed to create this type of reflective space for our congregation to be able to connect faith and work. And that's how I really fundamentally got into the faith, more deeply into the faith and work movement. And so you were
0: then encountering people, because I've been to Old St. Pat's Church, Mm. and it's it's a huge church, and it brings really great intersections of many different parts of downtown Chicago. So you were interacting probably with both business people who were in the rank and file on the
1: front lines, but also business
0: people who were probably in the executive suites. Is that a fair assessment? Uh,
1: that's a fair assessment. And it was. It, it took place just after I went down there in 1987 and the market crashed in 87. So it was uh, an opportunity to, to work with a lot of people who in the throes of work transitions itself. And so I had a chance, I think in my seven years down at Old St. Pat's, I saw probably 3,500 people one-on-one. And then that work got a little, there was a little too much of a demand. And so we developed a transitions program for people who are out of work. And we met on a monthly basis and got them out of the, and back at a home and down to, to our center. And there was a dialogue and presentation every month. But for People in in the throes of transition.
0: Now, oftentimes when you hear about people in transition, you hear about job retraining. You hear about gaining new skill sets. What does a person need spiritually when they're in transition, when they're in this kind of upheaval of their work and their life?
1: What's fascinating when people come in to talk about their work life is it it became very apparent for me that there there were three themes that got played out. One was the problems in the workplace and the focus on the job. And there, it was really kind of an exercise in kind of listening, offering options for them, making suggestions of ways they could better utilize either their skill set or to get skill sets. The second was career orientation. Were they in the right career and kind of a decision about where they wanted to invest themselves? The third piece was what I would talk about as the vocational conversation. What was the meaning of their life? Where they want to go with the direction of their life? And the energy is really fundamentally in that vocational sense where you're, you really have a sense of talking with people who have a greater purpose and are looking for deeper meaning in human life. And that was always a rich conversation. The, the more I could in conversations with the job folks and the careers folks invite them to do some vocational reflection, oftentimes the more effective I was. So when I was in graduate school in theology,
0: we were housed just across the parking lot from the business school. Mm. And it seemed to me oftentimes that the conversations in the business school were very different from the conversations that were happening in the divinity school about what motivates a person, what the, the proper ends of one's life should be, what a good life is. Did you ever encounter that kind of friction when you were in these vocational conversations? And oh, if
1: so, tell, tell me about them. Oh, absolutely. When, when you're dealing with people coming out of a business, uh, particularly out a business school, business school has a tendency to teach an ideology, an ideology of competition to win, mm. to be successful, and to accumulate wealth. Those aren't necessarily gospel values. So the engagement that you have, as a leader is being able to understand and appreciate the paradox so that you can attend empathetically to where people are and listen to what is going on in their life as they're pursuing different interests and to see where the conflicts exist and to ask questions of them in the midst of that, because it's really about their journey and they need to make effective decisions I'm a, somewhat of a, a devotee of, of Bernard Lonergan, a Jesuit theologian and philosopher, and his decision-making process is one of be attentive, be intelligent, be reasonable, be responsible, be loving. And if you can attend to those things in a decision-making process, that was oftentimes kind of the direction that I was, was teeing up for, for folks to consider. And so did you ever get pushback or did you ever get resistance when people,
0: I, I imagine, first of all, when people are in the midst of an unexpected job transition, they might be very angry or feel very upset. And then you're pushing this spiritual mumbo jumbo on them.
1: Did you ever get resistance or were they open to this? Yeah, my tendency is to work within people's life story okay. as opposed to, to impose the spirituality piece. If I, the, the only type of resistance I got, was ones of when people would put their hands up, fundamentally put their hands up and say, "I don't want to go exploring that." Mm. You would hit resistance out of what they were capable of at that time, and you've got to be respectful of that. So the probing I would do would be a kind of a based on inquiry and questions to see where they wanted to go. So my style of interplay is really one of heavily client-centered as opposed to having the spiritual mumbo-jumbo to give to them. I'm, I was working within whatever their traditions were to be able to understand who they were so that you could ask the, the, some of the questions that might move them in a particular direction. And forgive my use of the term mumbo-jumbo. That was my characterization, not... not But that's really the the fear people have. Mm -hmm. And if you begin to engage in it, you see the defenses go up right away. Sure. But if if I may, what I'm hearing is a parallel to
0: what you were saying earlier. So you were talking about wanting to go and find where God is at work in the world and in the workplace. It sounds like in your approach to your clients, you were also just listening to where God was already at work in them and not trying to bring God to them. Is that a fair characterization? That is
1: absolutely a fair characterization.
0: And so as As you're doing this, you're also bringing in good, rigorous psychology, you're bringing in testing and metrics, and you're utilizing, it sounds like, the cutting edge of how we understand people's motivations and
1: people's interior lives from a scientific sense, too. Is that a fair characterization? It is, particularly the work I've done with the psychiatrists. Yeah. Um, we're paying attention to somebody's life story and their ability to tell it and give meaning to what they do.
0: And would this be something like a Myers-Briggs
1: personality assessment or other tests like that? Or um, The group I work with is called Morrison Associates, and they have what they're calling an agile AJIL assessment based on a judgment model of collecting data boil it down and acting and understanding the emotional issues that get in the way of your making judgments. So we were giving feedback in relationship to, to the, the person's personality in relationship to how they made judgments and v- trying to validate that in their life stories, both personal story as well as work experience.
0: And did you find that this complemented the religious approach or were they sort of apples and oranges?
1: What happens when people tell stories is their stories are revelatory of who you are. Hmm. And so my role, the psychiatrist looked at their personal lives. I looked at their work lives from the time they were children in terms of their first jobs in school into the roles that they have currently. And um, I'm listening for for the stories. And those stories become revelatory.
0: Now, is the hypothesis that animates this that everyone has a true calling, and your job is to listen until you help them find their true calling, or is it the idea that they have multiple callings before them, and you want to help them pick the path that they find the most resonant?
1: I would go with the latter. If I was making a choice between the two, I'd go with the latter, and because I think it changes even in the co- through the course of the lifetime. And as you've been doing this
0: work at Old Saint Pat's and now in your private practice. Tell me about some of the successes. What what have you seen happen in the
1: lives of people? If you're successful with people, they begin to adapt constructively, and it's really about them doing, um, exercising, and understanding how their personality is working, and then utilizing some of the practices. In one sense, that's the most beneficial thing that you see. You see them become more effective leaders. You see them better listeners. Um, You see them asking better questions. You see them paying attention to spirit in a group and not just getting tasks done. Again, a business ideology has a tendency to focus on productivity and efficiency. And oftentimes those are in opposition to the human spirit. (laughs) Well, and, and so it sounds to me, and tell me if I'm hearing this right,
0: that in your range of experience, you may have seen some people that you were working with radically change their career path and their direction, and then others who would simply go back into the same career path, but it sounds like with a renewed sense of mission. Is that?
1: I would say both of those two things Mm -hmm. uh, happen because what you're trying to do is to, and I teach this, is transformative leadership as opposed to just transactional leadership. That's a very different place to be. My tendency with organizations I work with, I'm usually working with a mission-driven organization. So that there's a sense of there's something out here we're we're striving for in terms of human capacity. And how do you help people get there? As opposed to make money, you know, the efficiency isn't what life's about.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen, I'm David Dolph Our guest today is John Fontana. He's president of Fontana Leadership Development, an organizational and leadership development firm that provides consultation, educational, and facilitation services to improve the effectiveness of leaders in managing organizational and individual change. We'll be back in a moment. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. I'm speaking today with John Fontana. He's co director of the Ignatian Legacy Leader Fellows Program at Loyola University Chicago Institute for Pastoral Studies. Well, in the midst of all of this reflection and your work at Old St. Patrick's Church, you then at some point go off to become a part of the Woodstock program in theology. And I'm not familiar with that program. So first of all, tell me what the Woodstock
1: fellowship program is. The Woodstock Theological Center was located at Georgetown University. A Woodstock Theological Seminary had been the seminary for the Jesuit Maryland Province. And they closed the doors out in Woodstock, Maryland. And around 1970, 1971, and moved the Woodstock Theological Center to Georgetown University. Their library went to Georgetown, as well as a group of theologians. And so I was part of the Woodstock Theological Center as a senior fellow from about 2011 until they closed in 2013. It was at the Woodstock Theological Center that I worked predominantly with the Woodstock Business Conference, which are small reflection groups of business leaders around the country, about 12 groups around the country. When I was uh, speaking one day with the director of, of our board, he asked me a question, which was, John, is there a, an opening in the marketplace that we should be serving that isn't being met? And I looked at him, I said, there is no place for retiring executives to go if they don't play golf or fish and lead a meaningful retirement. And at the same time, I was watching Marianne Salisbury, who is uh, my co-director, who was doing development at the Woodstock Theological Center, trying to help raise money for um, the Woodstock Theological Center. It was not an easy task because the, the market had, when the market crashed in 2008, 2009, the foundation market really shifted dramatically away from theological books to other types of activities. And so it was more difficult to raise money. And I said to her, if we had five CEOs on this corridor and you needed 10 mil and you said, we need 10 million, they may have it for you in three or four weeks (laughs) Um, because of who they know and, and their own natural resources. And she liked the idea. We, we thought about bringing senior executives to Georgetown to spend a year. We'd walk them through the spiritual exercises so that they could reflect on their lives. The transition f- into retirement is really a transition from they've spent their whole lives as warriors. And the ancient tribes knew that in order to become an elder, you had to leave the warrior role and take a journey in order to, to acquire wisdom to come back to the tribe as a wise leader. That model it was in my head, and I thought the exercises are a great tool to be able to take a look at your whole life, see what legacy you want to leave on one side to get insight about that, and then to get foresight in relationship to um, what you want to do with the remaining years of your life. Isn't this
0: exactly the path that Ignatius Loyola took? He was a soldier; he was literally a warrior, and he he left that life to become a spiritual leader. Yeah, but he did it in his
1: thirties, okay. late twenties, thirties. <laughs> uh, he did it much younger. Sure, and engaged that journey. This is really a time in our culture when people are invited to to settle down. What's interesting for me is it's uh, also the age that I'm in. In terms of um, I'm sixty seven and I'm not ready to retire. Mm. Um, and so given that, this idea popped up. The Woodstock Theological Center closed. I thought the idea died, but uh, Mary Ann found this um, a foundation, the Henry Luce Foundation, and they were giving money for theological education. And this is an attempt to create theologians to deal with the baby boomers who are turning 65 at 10,000 a day for the next 20 years. There is a hidden wealth within that age group as they mature that you'd hate to lose in relationship to our communities. And so the, the attempt in one sense is to, to attract some high net worth individuals who are oftentimes trendsetters and to engage them in a year conversation around their own lives on one side and to do it in a learning community and then also to begin to see the missions of the Jesuits, so that it can be forming board members, advisors to the various missions that both within the Catholic Church, within Jesuit missions, and within any not-for-profit organization and to see what the theological underpinnings of these institutions are, because when business people come at institutions, they don't understand the theological underpinnings. This can be so helpful in so many ways, because, for example, if
0: a person comes to a nonprofit board of directors with a cutthroat competitive mindset, they're going to engage in governance in a very different way than a person who's gone
1: through this set of reflective exercises. Exactly. And the other thing that happened to me, was uh, my did my undergraduate work at the College of Holy Cross Jesuit School in Worcester, Mass., did an, a degree here at the Institute for Pastoral Studies at Loyola. In the interim, took some courses at Notre Dame at Boston College. So I began to see the larger Jesuit system and Catholic system. I began, became really aware of the global stretch of the uh, Jesuit system. Chris Lowney wrote a book called Heroic Leadership, and in it he talks about the 450-year-old global organization— that was started in the 16th century by Ignatius. And it's an unbelievable educational organization. And most people see their uh, see it through parochial eyes of the institution they attended, whether it's a Jesuit high school or Jesuit college. They don't have a tendency to see the whole system. And this program, uh, this Legacy Leaders Program, is set up so that they will start in Chicago, Go to Santa Clara and Berkeley, where the the, uh, theologate is at Berkeley. See Santa Clara. Then go down to Lima, Peru, and see the Jesuit operations in Lima. Then go to Boston College, to the other theologate that the Jesuits run, and the experience at Boston College. They have a Center for Aging, a Center for Retirement. Then go go to Georgetown University and see the the whole collection of various opportunities that, that Georgetown has to offer. And then we'll go to Spain and uh, do some of the pilgrimages and really get caught in the spirit of Ignatius in terms of his transition, and uh, see Asade, one of the key Jesuit business schools in Europe, and then he- close out in Rome at the Gregorian Institute and the Jesuit Center. So it's a, a year journey that will take a group of 20 through. We are just uh, building a bridge as we walk on it. it we, we don't even have collateral yet. We'll have it sometime in April to uh, be able to send to people. Our website should be open by hopefully by the end of April. And we'll be recruiting people to become part of this mission. This is so exciting.
0: So you're literally, as I'm talking to you,
1: this is being birthed as we speak. Exactly. I started here at Loyola on February 12th. (laughs) And we've put together a partnership around these various Jesuit institutions. It should be a terrific learning experience for anyone that decides to journey with us for a year, first of all for themselves. And then ultimately, when you graduate from this program, the hope is that we will not only do a program here out of uh, IPS, but open cohorts on both coasts at Berkeley and Santa Clara and Boston College and their School of Theology and Ministry. And these folks will then become a society of fellows. Ignatian Society of Fellows. So we're excited about this kind of vision for developing fellows who are focusing in on the various missions of the Jesuits and the research and projects that are happening globally to transform the world. Now, you mentioned a few minutes ago the statistics. It is
0: really amazing how many members of the baby boom generation every day are passing into what we would consider to be retirement age. And so what you're saying, and you said it before, but I'd really like to expand on that, is that this is an untapped resource. It's an untapped resource of capital, certainly, but it's also an untapped resource of wisdom. It's an untapped resource of experience. And if we do what we normally do with retirees, which is just to kind of shoo them away in our society, we're going to lose all of that.
1: And so this is an attempt to capture that, isn't it? Well, it is. And um, Michael Garanz- Father Michael Garanzini, who is president at Loyola and chancellor here at Loyola, is in charge of um, Jesuit higher education globally. He's a key member of our team. And not only that, but he's also a family systems expert. And, and one of the roles that you play is not only the public roles, but you also have the private roles of family. And the role of grandparenting is a powerful role that no one trains you for. And so part of the reflection that will be going on in terms of foresight is a kind of a a look at not only work but family and taking a holistic approach to the participants in the program and the ability for them to listen to their story, to tell their story, to see uh, the impact of that story. And the reality is we're meaning makers. And so how are we developing our story as we move into the later stages of life? And my hunch is there's going to be a need for some healing, in all sorts of places, but you need time and the type of spiritual direction that can come out of a program like this. In terms of what
0: you, you've mentioned, that you want this not just to be on what we call the Third Coast here in Chicago, but also on the West Coast and on the East Coast, what is the rationale for having three locations
1: for this program? One of the rationales is the tuition for a program like this will be $75,000 plus tra- their own travel. Everything else will be picking up. The profit from that will go to the, to the schools of theology and ministry. It's a, a beginning of a way to educate the future, particularly through the schools of theology and ministry. What's interesting is a lot of money is going toward business schools, law schools, medical schools, engineering and STEM programs. Theologians don't make a lot of money. Um, and people in pastoral ministry don't get rich quickly. So the, the resources are not coming into those places. Higher education right now is uh, heavily oriented toward getting jobs. And th- theological education has a tendency to not be very valued in the short term because it's oftentimes dealing with ultimate questions versus proximate questions. This program is, uh, is about s- supporting theological education because if you don't have it, part of my belief is you're going to have a tough time on values and ethical decision-making in your business life or your work life. And so the theological roots are real important, I think, to extrapolate on and to have some type of basic understanding. And so this program will be supporting those three institutes and hopefully kind of orienting those institutes to think about this market of people over 65 who are, I think, facing into the ultimate question of life. And the churches ought to be attending to those folks. If you're just joining us,
0: this is Things Not Seen, and we're speaking today with John Fontana. He's co-director of the Ignatian Legacy Leader Fellows Program at Loyola University Chicago's Institute for Pastoral Studies. We'll be back in a moment. So for those of you that are longtime listeners to Things Not Seen, you may be aware that I do another show called The Francis Effect with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan priest. Every couple of weeks, he and I get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Now, Dan, why should I be talking to you? Who are you? Who am I? I'm a Franciscan friar, a Roman Catholic priest, and a professor of theology here in Chicago, and... That's a good question. I have no idea why you should be talking with me, but if people are interested in what a conversation between you, the otherwise uh, respectable host of Things Not Seen, and me, the not-so-respectable Roman Catholic priest and theologian, I think they should tune in. Yeah, they should definitely tune in. So that's The Francis Effect, and you can find it at francisfxpod.com. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with John Fontana. He's co director of the Ignatian Legacy Leader Fellows Program at Loyola University Chicago's Institute for Pastoral Studies. You've had both ministerial training and you've had business training. In your ministry training, Is there one lesson or one thing that you learned during that portion of your education that you find is still relevant and you still draw upon today?
1: Oh, I think my life has been played out with the religious questions. I mean, life is about grace and your ability to encounter it, live it, and have it sustain you in the work that you do. So for me, the movement of God that I'm able to see in the workplace, in my family life, is what sustains me as a human being and also has me participating in the vocational mission to be able to build a kingdom
0: you were Jesuit trained and right. so you were trained in Jesuit schools and you you hung out with Jesuits and you are now at a Jesuit institution here at Loyola University are there lessons from the Ignatian spiritual exercises that you find that you draw on every day what for listeners who are unfamiliar with this what are some of the golden nuggets that a person who is involved in these sorts of reflections will take away from them?
1: Um, for me, the, the, the initial Ignatian retreat when I was 23 years of age gave me a sense of purpose and understanding of what it really meant to build the kingdom. I had come out of, um, had done a lot of reading on Daniel Berrigan. I, was, I grew up in the uh, anti-war movement in the late 60s. And uh, early 70s, and uh, this really solidified a lot of stuff from a theological perspective. It wasn't just political; it was understanding what the the divine motivations are in terms of how do you build the kingdom, and a peaceable kingdom at that. The the reality that we the Jesuits play is um, the cultivation of your interiority. That's an important type of knowledge, and the way you, you continue to develop it is through the pr- the the daily practice of the examine. George Ashenbrenner, a Jesuit, wrote a great paper on, on the examine, and he talked about it as a reflection on consciousness. So are you conscious of the movement of grace in human life? Are you conscious of uh, the problems and sins that might be, might be around? And um, how do you develop eyesight and affect that pays attention to that? That daily practice has been with me for close to 50 years. And I do it on a daily basis on my way home from work and just before bedtime.
0: As you look back on nearly 50 years of your engagement with the Jesuits, if someone was just now starting out in their life of business, what are some of the key things that you would direct them to if if they're listening to this now, they're excited by what they're hearing about what you're saying, where should they start if they want to begin to explore the kinds of resources that you're bringing to this conversation? Um,
1: I I think the Jesuits are making a real effort to engage people around Ignatian spirituality. It's not so much the the theology, but the Ignatian spirituality seems to me to be uh, the secret sauce of the Jesuits. One of the books about the Jesuits talks about men astutely trained. And I think what they're astutely trained at is staying in touch with who they are and what the life situations they're in. And they accompany each other. So the sense of community is really important. So I would just encourage them to take, to find either Jesuit parish, Jesuit universities, and begin to get in touch with people who are engaged in Ignatian spirituality as a as a practice for life. And so where would they go to find that? So do they look for the Jesuits in the phone book? So where does one go to get involved? Yeah, in I, I, all, all you would have to do is, uh, is, uh, is, is, is look at uh, Google Jesuits, and all sorts of stuff will come up. And you can narrow it down in terms of your area or just in terms of a Google, um, uh, go, go to Amazon and look at uh, literature around a spirituality. There's a lot of, of good literature on it. So if you're someplace in Oshkosh or um, away from the mainstream, um, you could just order something on, on Amazon and you begin to get an orientation towards it. Father Bill Byron, former president at Catholic University of America, Scranton University, University of New Orleans, has written a number of uh, very good books on leadership and Ignatian spirituality that you might want to pay attention to.
0: And to be clear, you don't have to become a priest to live this. You can oh, live this no, as a no, layperson. No,
1: no, no. This, I, f- my sense is that the examine is the most important tool for a layperson in terms of their ability to be adaptive leaders at home and in the workplace. And that's a ongoing reflection, and it's a an, it's a discipline or asceticism that one needs to acquire in order to be, I think, to be effective leader. No matter what you're doing, um, reflection is really important. One of the things that I ask all
0: of my guests is. I will ask them both what continues to frustrate them and then what continues to give them hope. So that's what I'm going to do now. And so uh, I'm going to ask you about the frustration, but we're going to pivot from that to the hope piece. So I, I hope that you'll engage me with both. What is it after 50 years of this kind of reflection, both on the spiritual life and the life of work,
1: what is it that continues to frustrate you? What I see happening in terms of the split in this country, a lot of it being driven by economic power, and business. I was I just finished reading um, Duff McDonald's book, *The Golden Passport*, which is subtitled *Capitalism, Harvard Business School, and the Moral Failure of the MBA Elite*. We have effectively moved efficiency and productivity into every institution, both globally and, and even into our churches. It brings good on one side, but it also brings danger in terms of manipulation. All you have to do is look at our healthcare system, and you see the role, the change that has happened from a mission that was driven oftentimes by the religious organizations who saw a need and built hospitals and then hospital systems to now a system that's being run by, in some ways, by our insurance companies. And I'm not sure we're in good shape around those things. And so what is it that continues to give you hope? I think the a leader's got to embody hope. I mean, just in terms of who you are. So you've got to be able to make a difference in terms of where you are and to find organizations and like-minded people to meet with, connect with, and then begin to strategize in terms of organizational change, both political change in organizations, as well as just creating a, a more healthy world. So issues of sustainability, paying attention to the uh, to ecology are, are, from my perspective, really important things to be engaged in.
0: Well, John Fontana, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. The work that you're doing sounds amazing, and I'm, I'm enlivened by it, even though I'm still Let's hope a little ways off from retirement, but I, I'm excited by what is going to be happening with this new program over the next in, in the coming years.
1: Well, I, um, it's, we're building a bridge as we walk on it. I'm a person of hope and optimism. So um, let's keep our fingers crossed, and um, would love to talk to people uh, that are out there that are interested in uh, this type of a movement. Well, thank you for speaking to us
0: today. David, thank you. So we've been speaking today with John Fontana. He's co-director of the Ignatian Legacy Leader Fellows program at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University here in Chicago. He's the president of Fontana Leadership Development, an organizational and leadership development firm that provides consultation, educational and facilitation services to improve the effectiveness of leaders in managing organizational and individual change. He's past executive director of Partners for Catholic Health Ministry Leadership, a consortium of 17 Catholic health organizations. He founded and was the executive director of the Crossroads Center for Faith and Work at Old St. Patrick's Church in Chicago, a significant resource in the Chicago business community to encourage ethical reflection on the work in the workplace. He's taught management courses at Georgetown University, Dominican University, and here at Loyola University in Chicago. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on patreon you can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash not seen radio that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash not seen radio you can follow us on twitter at not seen radio